This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. A great mix of expert advice and real life stories on today's show. Addressing World Prematurity Day with one couple who consider themselves to be graduates of the neonatal intensive care unit. Two years later, what did they want parents to know about babies born too soon? We're in conversation with medical director at DNA Wellness, Dr. Nasser Jafari, in the studio with a patient, Jade, who found herself going down all sorts of routes before actually addressing her issue of adrenal fatigue. Is this something that you could be suffering from? It's good to talk. Laura Anthony, primary school teacher, has started running sessions for kids aged 10 to 14 to help them open up about some of the issues they might be facing. We were in the swim with Alex, who was taking on a challenge to swim his way around the palm for very good cause indeed. Marking entrepreneurship as well with Professor Heather McGregor from Harriet Watt. What needs to change in order to get more women into the business roles they dream of? And we're also marking anti-bullying week with a school counsellor. What actually happens if your child is being bullied and how can a school support... We are marking World Prematurity Day with Dad Isaac. He calls himself a graduate of the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit after he and his wife, Irene's little girls, M&M, which we'll come to in a minute, were born too soon. Two years later, both girls are healthy. And this brave couple are on something of a mission to raise awareness around prematurity, life after the hospital, milestones for here in Dubai, but also in developing countries around the world. Isaac, it's so lovely to have you with us this afternoon. Um, I just want to say... Thanks, Ellie. What an important message you you are carrying and how wonderful it is to hear from a dad, to hear from that, from that perspective, both here in the studio, but also in the book as well. So let's let's start at the very beginning. Tell us about about Irene's pregnancy and, and how the girls came into the world too soon. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, we just had a normal pregnancy, which would say um, we make fun that it was a Valentine's pregnancy. But uh, uh, at the end of the day, um, it so happened that... Uh, Everything was uh, during the pandemic. So um, while I was just celebrating the, the, pre- the start of the pregnancy, that's when also the pandemic hit. And um, things just went, uh, as we all know, that uh, uh, there was a lockdown, there was the uh, restrictions of movements and all that. And uh, things like the clinics, uh, the, the prenatal visits were a bit of, a, of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but all in all, uh, on the positive side, we take that, uh, you know, she had the time to, to stay in the house and just mm-hmm. sort of relax and um, uh, just take care of herself. Um, and uh, one of the things that we do is we do a bit of running up and down. Uh, so she, did, she does a bit of exercises. Um, and when the lockdown eased, um, uh, that's come summertime, I think it was around July, um, on the Friday of the 31st of July, uh, 2020, uh, that's when uh, she developed a bit of complications and um, we rushed to uh, Latifa Hospital. And uh, apparently that's when the uh, the doctor said that uh, there is a dilation. Um, it seems that she's going to labor. And this was something that was very unexpected. Well, because how, Yeah, how many weeks was she pregnant? That was at, was she? Um, this happened uh, 24 weeks, uh, three days. 
So with even with twins, as we know, they do tend to come a little bit early. This is far, far too early at just 24 weeks. So dilation of the cervix. So yes. so Irene was, was going into labor. Exactly. Um, and uh, at 24, you know, this is something we didn't expect. We hadn't, we hadn't even done the shopping for anything, you know. <laughs> yeah, like the nursery is not ready. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, you know. Um, and so uh, we, we just, everything, even in terms, because we didn't even have the visits, uh, most of the things we are doing is just online, you know, in terms of research and development and just to see exactly the milestone and all that. Well, I mean, I, I hadn't even done my antenatal classes at, at, at 24, 25 weeks. I think I got to kind of 30 weeks and was like, okay, this is serious. I actually am going to yeah. have this baby. Now we need to do the shopping and the research and the, the practical stuff. Uh, exactly. So um, you were blindsided. And that's uh, that was a surprise. I mean, this was the biggest surprise in our lives. So um, and it so happened that, you know, there's the pandemic, there's the, there's the registration movement. And then uh, that Friday, it happened to be, um, the weekend of the idyll of the holidays. So um, everything was, can imagine. And that was 2020. That was, the weekend was on a Friday. And so when we checked into Latifa Hospital, the doctor, as I said, one of the key things that we learned from this is the interventions, uh, having timely interventions. Uh, the doctor said, oh, we need to have uh, an immediate check. And uh, she referred us down to Dubai Hospital in Deira. And we checked in there around 9 p.m., uh, on a Friday, and um, that's when the doctor said, "You know, yeah, two, yeah, two centimeters down the line, we need to uh, have a, an emergency check-in." And so she was admitted uh, for stabilization. And uh, the first day, that Saturday, uh, she was okay. Sunday, she was okay. In fact, Monday, she was, oh yeah, she can maintain. I think it's possible for her to maintain. Um, but then Tuesday, uh, for down, uh, that was now the start of the 25th day, of uh, 25th week, uh, zero days. Uh, the dilation just went four centimeters. And so those girls are ready to come out. Oh, uh, yeah. One of them um, was just kicking. And uh, actually, the doctor did a physical examination and she could feel the, the feet. And she was like, okay, here you go. Let's get down. And uh, uh, so they operated at 25. Uh, Weeks, zero days. Both of them. Um, what did they weigh, Isaac? The gross weight um, was 80, 30 grams, and the other one was 80, 40 grams. That was the gross weight. Um, and, of course, they were healed. Um, I mean, they were sort of uh, wheeled into uh, the portable uh, you know, incubator and taken to the NICU. And the following day, you know, everything after everything dries up, oh, there were 640 grams and 630 grams. Oh, so that was goodness. our baseline. Yeah. So, what was the prognosis you were given? Well, uh, the first day, uh, I mean, we are all confused. So, um, and uh, the, the doctor, our, our consulting um, uh, neonatologist by then, just kept saying, guys, this is extremely premature. There's nothing I can tell you. There's nothing I can tell you. Um, we just have to wait and see how they, they, they go. So, this was a, an issue of trusting the process. Mm -hmm. It was an issue of just... You know what? Faith and hope. It was an issue of, okay, let's see how a day by day, a day by day. Mm -hmm. um, and the good thing is that um, Irene was taken to uh, the general ward after the operation. And one of the key aspects that we actually pay tribute to is the, the nurse that took care of her the following day, despite the wound and everything else. She did a bit of TLC, telling her, you know what? You need to express. Mm -hmm. We need to take care of these babies. There's nothing else they're going to depend on. And that's a focus for a new mum. That's a bit of a mission. That's that's your reason, Dutcher, isn't it? Like, I'm going to do what I can do. I can control what I can control. And yeah. I'm going to do everything in my power to get that goodness to those babies. Yeah. 
and uh, for her she focused not so much on the pain of the of the mother uh but on the fact that you know it's 20 25th week yes it's fine uh, but you know what uh please try to do i mean she wasn't ready to start uh, breastfeeding so there had to be a little a lot of stimulation mm-hmm. um a lot of uh, effort to have it running and the first day i think they collected maybe 2.5 ml on a syringe and Well, it kept on going on uh despite the pain. Uh I think uh the nurse and, and the mother did a good job. Um because three days down the line they had about 5 ml of breast milk because of from stimulation and express tiny little tummies, you know, they don't need much more than that. That must have been that was such a turning point for them. Yeah, the interesting part was now that uh uh the first uh day, uh the first one was uh I mean, they had, both had to go into the incubator and um, and have this life support. And um, in the second day, uh, they had this caffeine solution that they were given. Uh, the third day, but then the doctor said, "You know what? Um, let's try and see if they're going to have a bit of breast milk, uh, 2.5 ml, uh, and see what's going to happen." That is when we realized, okay, it's going to have the first miracle is happening here. Uh, they took it up without any reaction. Dot by dot. I think it was like two or three drops. Uh. <laughs> Joining me in the studio this afternoon is Dad Isaac. He and his wife Irene welcomed two little girls quite a bit earlier than expected. 25 weeks, twin girls were born. And their book, 89 Day Journey, from NICU, The Parents' View, is being worked on now, looking to spread awareness around prematurity, life after leaving the hospital, those milestones and markers, for both here in Dubai, but also in developing countries around the world. 89 Days, Isaac, tell us about the name of the book you're working on. Why is that number significant to you and Irene? Well, the H9 days uh, is when we started from the day Irene went into uh, this complication until uh, the day we uh, took the babies home. Um, it all took H9 days. And um, we had this uh, fear that probably one would be left in the hospital and we'd be told, you know, one has reached their milestones, take one, leave the other. But we were lucky that uh, both of them reached the milestones uh, at the same time. So um, we got to have the start to the end uh, uh, being the 89 days. Tell us about life then in NICU, because you have got to reach these milestones before the girls were able to come home. And you, of course, well, you have a job to do. And there was responsibilities and a home and you weren't able to stay at the hospital. What was a typical day like during that time? Well, um, this was in the middle of the pandemic, and uh, uh, we all had this aspect of work from home. Were you uh, working from the hospital? Was, uh, <laughs> we work from the hospital, work from home. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we managed because uh, you can work from anywhere nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And the good thing is that with the hospital, uh, the Dubai Hospital uh, NICU facility, you can access, uh, the parents can visit uh, any time of the day, even if it's at 3 a.m., even if it's at whatever, it's 24 hours access mm-hmm. to the parent. And there is a uh, there is a Wi-Fi, and I think DHA has done a good job in, you know, there's a free Wi-Fi, there's a, um, at any time you visit the hospital. It's just not what you imagine as a, as a new parent. You know, you think about counting down the weeks, you get to 40 weeks, you go into hospital, you have an uncomplicated birth, and a few days later get to take that bouncing baby or baby's home. And for you and for so many more parents, I think, than many of us realise, it's only when you start to have children or start to try to have children that you realise just how difficult it is 
to get pregnant, stay pregnant, have a healthy baby. And I think a lot of there's a lot of grief around it, even if you do, as you do, have two really happy, bouncing, dancing baby girls to, I guess, recalibrate about what that experience was and, and wasn't for you. How do you think it's affected you as parents, Isaac? Well, we sort of, as I say, uh, calibrated the, the whole experience in uh, sort of a traffic light system. And um, so we have this, the first month was sort of the red light and, um, you know, everything was just nothing. You know, we couldn't even visualize anything. We couldn't um, think of anything. You know, we sort of had a, a sort of a, an emotional uh dead bit uh, element. Just didn't, um, just didn't dare to hope. Yeah, yeah, because at the end of the day, um, even the doctor himself is like, you know what, this is extremely premature and uh, there's nothing much you can say. Uh, we just have to trust the process. Um, yeah, And then when you review the literature and you read through, you research what's happening, what has been um, the kind of experiences, especially for the twins. One baby, yeah, one is fine. But when you have two, then you have the, the, the risk element that comes with uh, uh, both of them and um, um, they all had their different struggles during the stay. Mm. Uh, so the first month was a bit um, uh, quite quite emotional draining. Um, uh, but the good thing is that uh, Irene got the time to uh, express um, and she did a good job with that. We actually uh, had to buy a freezer for that. Um, and we had this uh, delivery of, of you know, the breast milk every, um, every day uh, in the evening. And... Um, we sort of started having progress and celebrating key milestones. Um, I think our key celebration was the weight gain because as I said um, they had to gain two kgs before they leave the hospital. And you can imagine you're starting from 630 and 640 kg. I mean, grams. Tiny little things. Oh, tiny. yeah. Uh, so uh, whenever they even gained 10 grams, we were like, yay. That's... But isn't that important to celebrate those, those mini wins and milestones? And getting them home must have just felt like the biggest breakthrough ever. And I just wanted to finish by asking you about the book. What are you hoping to communicate with sharing the experience that you and Irene went through with the twin girls? Well, um, from the experience, and we just realized that uh, the NICO experience for most parents is quite a, uh, a devastating experience. It's isolating. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and um, there's some parents who also get into that um, uh, no self-doubt uh, that uh, why why has it happened? Is it, you know, uh, is it my mistake when you have things like the cervix incompetence? You know, you start thinking, am I an incompetent parent or something like that? I know, the phrasing does not help. We need to put a ban on some of these <laughs> medical terms. Uh, uh, I think so. Uh, <laughs> we really but, do. So there's that emotional drain that comes with that, but uh, trust the process. It's going to be fine. Um, I, th I think the other thing is also the differences you now when it comes to, uh, the, you know, for example, uh, we have, uh, as I said, we have parents uh, we are from, uh, uh, you know, the African part of it. We have the, the Middle East and you have, let's say, places like Australia. So you find that in different parts of the world, um, the uh, aspect of prematurity is, is being handled differently. In some countries, for example, they have gone down to 16 weeks as an, you know, a rescue. But you look at the World Health Organization definition of, prim of, of viable uh, babies, it's about 20 weeks. So we just reached that threshold and just, just above it. Um, so the other thing is, of course, uh, we understand... There are cases where, I mean, um, we, where you lose the child and uh, it so happens that uh, bereavement comes with its own grief and all that. Uh, but there is hope that even if it's at that sort of a threshold at 24 weeks or even uh, 20 weeks, you can, let's say from 20 weeks, they still hope that the technology that has been put in place um, is, is, is sort of managing these aspects. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you for sharing your story both today, that of the girls, M&M, as you, uh, as you call them, and for, to Irene as well. I think it's so important to have these conversations. It's lovely to hear from you as a dad. Um, we've had a message here saying, for babies born too soon, do check out Small and Mighty Babies. Well said indeed, this is a great support network here in the UAE that goes into hospitals and can be there as a support, both emotional and practical. And thank you again. When the book is out and ready... Please let us know. It sounds like a really, really valuable resource and uh, a way of reaching a community that is very much there for you. Isaac, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Helen. I wish you'd put the girls in for a little squeeze and a dance, but I will settle for the videos you've been showing me on your phone. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. All the very best Thanks. to the girls. Marking World Prematurity Day. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Now, you might not hear me say this very often, but we're taking a bit of a lead from TikTok this afternoon. Adrenal fatigue is trending on the social media platform with more than 500 million views. Our videos about signs, symptoms and treatments. But is this really such a major health issue? We're going to be getting to the bottom of it and speaking to a sufferer as well. Joining us live in the studio is Dr. Nasser Al-Jafari, Medical Director at DNA Health and Wellness. 500 million views, Doctor. What's it all about? Can you break it down for us in ideally not too doctorly terms? What is adrenal fatigue and how might it present? Yeah, no, I mean, it's something that probably people have heard of colloquially, but not in a sort of medical environment. Mm. It probably would be useful to sort of set out what the adrenals are. So these are kind of small triangular-like shaped glands that sit on both your kidneys and they produce a number of hormones. A couple of them people may have heard of cortisol, which is your kind of stress hormone and uh, adrenaline-like hormones as well. And these are hormones which are activated as part of your stress response, which actually, if you look at it ancestrally, was only really meant to be activated in the short term, Mm -hmm. a few seconds, minutes when you're in danger. Yeah, the saber-toothed tiger effect. Exactly. So you you make you run away or forage for food or, you know, find shelter. The problem nowadays is that because of our sort of modern environment, it's chronically activated or it's uh, activated sort of to an extreme. Mm -hmm. And so those sort of changes that happen sort of mentally and physically, which you'll be able to relate to, you know, if you have an exam or you have to public speak or go on the radio, uh, which, you know, are favorable become uh, negative. So, you know, if you're activating these symptoms all the time, you can get changes in your personality or anxiety, depression. Physiologically, you can get changes in your immune system. Uh, You can get fatigue, changes in your gut, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. And why might some people suffer more than others? Well, so, I mean, we all have probably different levels of uh, uh, resilience and and, and tolerances. And and sometimes, you know, when we think of stress, we just think of emotional cerebral stress, which is, you know, obviously a big part of life. But people neglect the kind of physical causes of stress. We're often seeing, you know, sleep deprivation, even people kind of overexercising or, you know, poor gut health. Anything Mm -hmm. really physically or mentally can contribute. So why do you feel like it's perhaps not that well recognized? Yeah, I think, you know, probably a number of reasons. Firstly, it's not something that fits into a sort of neat neat disease category, so it's not very well identified. Uh, I think secondly, it's not something that's very easily tested for. There isn't a standardized test. Uh, and also, I think thirdly, particularly now that, you know, the health system has become very subspecialized because it, it's very slow, often insidious onset of symptoms and they're very diverse, you won't, you will often not find that sort of one person will be able to piece everything together. Mm-hmm. A, a really interesting question here from Loki on 4001 for Dr. Nasser saying, any insights read this, read this versus long COVID? You mentioned some symptoms there that perhaps could very well cross over into a, a diagnosis of long COVID. Well, yeah, so that's an interesting point. So long COVID, I think, has been sort of categorized as a sort of chronic fatigue type syndrome. Yeah, post-viral. And, 
Exactly. And so we're actually seeing a lot of it as a result of COVID. And it's almost kind of this cascading uh, inflammatory reaction, which is kind of leading to overwhelming the adrenal glands. And, and actually at the root of a lot of chronic fatigue is uh, adrenal issues. So let's talk testing then, or if not testing, then coming to a diagnosis, because we're going to be speaking to Jade um, in just a few minutes about, I'm sure a lot of people go down a lot of, well, you know, red herring routes before they actually get something actionable that they can do to change how they feel. What can it be misdiagnosed as and, and how do you tend to come to a decision on treatment? Yeah, so, you know, often it just comes from a very good history. And, I thought uh, you'd say it comes from a really good doctor. <laughs> well, I'll <laughs> let you say that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just, just and, and, and that's another issue because doctors now often don't have enough time to take a thorough history. Uh, you know, you can employ testing and we tend to use uh, more salivary testing because you can get multiple point samples throughout the day rather than just a single blood test because with a single blood test, you're just capturing the cortisol level at that time. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it still doesn't have a particularly high sensitivity. So it's great if you capture it, but if you don't, it doesn't rule out uh, the issue. Uh, in terms of what it can potentially get confused with, I mean, often people get diagnosed with just depression or uh, they'll get labeled with chronic fatigue or a fibromyalgia type syndrome. Um, It really just depends on the exact sort of symptomology that people are presenting with. With us this afternoon, we are delighted to be joined by the Medical Director at DNA Health and Wellness, Dr. Nas Al-Jafari. With us, Susie has been in touch with a question for you, Doctor, saying, I think I might have this. Have suffered with lightheadedness and foggy-headedness for years now, but also get continuous panicky feelings, carb cravings, and I'm tired all the time. And I've been, <laughs> oh, Susie, I've been under stress for, ooh, as long as I can remember. Um, do I need to get a formal diagnosis or is there, anything, is there anything I can do or take on my own? What comes to mind there with Susie? Yeah, I mean, you know, just with that brief history, it does seem pretty typical of a, as of, of a presentation. I mean, listen, the formal diagnosis is often difficult to come by unless you're seeing more of a sort of integrative type practitioner. Um, and it just kind of fits you into a nice box to sort of treat. But ultimately, uh, there are many things that you can do and it uh, hinges around lifestyle change. And I guess we can go into the sort of details about that. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are talking adrenal fatigue in the studio this afternoon. Something that's resonated with an awful lot of you who seem to think they have it. Uh, but do you? And if so, what can you do about it? Dr. Nasser Al-Jafari is here. He is the medical director at DNA Health and Wellness. And we've got patient Jade in the studio to... Jade, talk about where you were when you first met Dr. Nasser. Tell us a little bit about some of the symptoms that you went to him with, because it sounds like it was quite the list. Yes, I was kind of at the end of my tether, to be honest. Um, so you got, I got obvious, you know, fatigue, muscle weakness. My stomach was never quite right. But there was some really strange things like dizziness every time I stood up, um, craving salt, which was really odd. I used to like suck crisps, salt and vinegar crisps, which is really weird. <laughs> the, 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 the finger in the bottom of the packet. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, those tiny little I know bits. It well. Exactly. Um, and just the foggy brain, like I would be on pitches at work and you'd be talking and suddenly the word would escape me. And but, that was it. And I think as a woman, it's a bit, that can be a bit scary because people go, well, that's got to be the menopause. It's, the brain fog is real. And you're like, well, the other things aren't really adding up. So it sounds like you'd gone down an awful lot of routes then. What, what did you expect to hear from Dr. Nasser when you meet him? Um, I don't, you know, so I had, I'd had my bloods done, all my vitamins were normal, everything like that. Early menopause, I thought, when I got that tested, absolutely fine. I'd been to dietitians, cut out cheese, nuts, everything. So I was literally like, and by the time I got to you, I think I was half dead. I'd, like one of those, I'd have to have a nap kind of tiredness. And that's a really scary 
experience, I'm sure, in terms of identity and practicalities of being, you know, a busy woman in the world. And I think for many people, you get to a desperation point of going, just fix me, just give me the drugs. What what do I need in order to get through today or the next week? Or how long is this going to be going on? And Doctor, what what was your first take then upon upon having a chat with Jade? Yeah, I mean, I I think Jade was, again, your sort of classic burning the candles at both ends. So, you know, she's a mum of, is it two or three? Three. Three three kids, you know, just moved over. Keen runner. Operating a business, yeah. Uh, smashing it on the kind of cardio and hit, etc. <laughs> and it, it ultimately just comes down to restoring balance, which often, again, if you're sort of more of a type A personality, it's not the sort of thing you want to hear, but it's the, exactly what it is. You, you just need to sort of scale back. I know, but you've got doctors being like, well, you just need to reduce your stress. You're like, well, that would be lovely. How on earth are we supposed to do that? <laughs> so what, what changes were made then? Because you were expecting, you know, a, a pretty hefty prescription, but it was supplements that you were looking at as well, Doctor. Yeah, and I, to be honest, the, the supplements really were just kind of re- refining or just giving you that little bit of edge. It, it was ultimately, I mean, if we look at your case, um, it was just making sure that, A, from a dietary perspective, you were sort of nourishing yourself, mm. not sort of calorically restricting, which often a lot of particularly women can do. Uh, scaling back on the training, just being smarter about it and not putting too much stress on your adrenals and doing too much cardio or HIIT training Um, and just making sure she had periods of rest and and downtime. And yeah, that is difficult to do, but I think people are becoming a lot more conscious and are talking about, you know, mindfulness type activities and and you can't forget optimizing sleep. Oh, no. (laughs) I messaged you before going, remind me to tell you about being cold and tired all the time. We're going to talk off air about this. So for anyone that is, this is resonating with there are the lifestyle factors as well what, what if it's left untreated if jade hadn't found you what state can you can you get to with adrenal fatigue doctor yeah so i, I you could probably divide it into both sort of mental and physical so you know i've, I've seen people who then develop full-blown anxiety and depression mm-hmm. uh one extreme and, and they just kind of go down the route of seeing a psychiatrist and being medicated just for that but yet sort of root cause isn't addressed Physically, I mean, you can range from everything from, you know, perpetuating or even contributing to the development of things like autoimmune conditions. We often see an interplay with the thyroid and, and the adrenals. A common presentation for uh, infertility is disruption to sex hormones. Uh, a lot of people will present with gut issues, chronic gut issues, and be labeled with I- IBS and be mm. given gut centric. Not treating that. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, then you've got your immune system and it can be frequent infections. So literally any system can be uh, affected and, and you can end up down any sort of rabbit hole. Jade, how are you now? I'm, I'm back to normal. Do you really feel like you're your old self? 100%. And it happened quite quickly. I'd say it was only a matter of about three months. Wow. So what are you doing, changing, trying, taking now to maintain that sense of energy and focus and just the, as you said, feeling like you again? Well, I had to give up running for a while, which is quite difficult for me. Um, Early mornings, I've kind of scrapped because I used to get up at five, do run, you know, just hammering my body all the time without really thinking what I was doing Mm -hmm. you know you get in kind of a wheel don't you You just get on with it go to work look after the children yeah and you kind of expect that of yourself as well like this is what this is who I am this is what I do this is what health looks like to me exactly yeah so I had to kind of step back from that um got quite into reformer pilates which I always just thought oh that's not going to work that's not going to do anything but it is really quite tricky and I really enjoy that and also kind of nourishing myself like I I got um because I don't cook at all i'm terrible in the the kitchen (laughs) so dr naz suggested getting um meals delivered 
and that's just worked brilliantly. So I don't think about it, I just grab it and go to work. Can I ask you, I'm curious for any recommendations, because I've got a friend who seems to have tried a lot of them and she's looking for some good ones. So I don't mind doing some small business shout-outs. Are there any companies that you feel like are doing a good job on the meal delivery front? Yes, because uh, I tried a few. Uh, it's called Smith Street Cafe, and it's in near Arabian Ranches, I think. Okay, thank and you. And it is in, it's insane. It's really good. And Dr. Noss, for anyone that is resonating with a lot of the symptoms that you and Jade have been talking about this afternoon. What's the first point of call? Because as you said, a lot of doctors perhaps haven't got the time or even the kind of background in, in identifying this and then going on to treat it. Could you go come and see a doctor such as yourself off the bat or would you need to get a referral? Yeah, no, no, they can come straight away. But I think, yeah, classically what you will find is that a lot of people will go into the standard health system because you know their insurance and they'll go around the houses and do all the testing before they come. But no, mm. If they have the insight, then they can come directly for sure. For anyone that's suffering from kind of general fatigue, uh, to which I would imagine everybody listening right now, um, because we're in crazy season in Dubai. Everyone I speak to is overwhelmed and stressed out and overextended and just knackered. Is there anything that we could be doing, changing, taking? And I'm not talking about addressing a medical need in particular, but just a bit of an energy boost. I mean, often what you'll find is if it sounds too good to be true, it generally, it generally is. That's I think in, indirectly, though, I mean, it's not too depressing. You, you know, look at, for example, sleep. I mean, there's ways that you can enhance sleep, even something as simple as certain types of magnesium. Um, you know, I'm not adverse to sometimes using melatonin with people, which is also a great sort of anti antioxidant as well. Um, and just being conscious about uh, listening to your body because mm -hmm. it will tell you if, you if you're training too hard, you'll, you'll not want to go and do that workout. Mm -hmm. And rather than trying to suppress that, actually, you know, listen to your body. I had a number of people asking for where they can find you. I will let you hand over for uh, the contacting Dr. Nass. Uh, yeah, so DNA Health uh, Clinics were now located on Al, Al Wassel Road. We have other branches, but I'm predominantly working at that branch. If you do want those details, by all means, drop me a little line. I'd be very happy to, uh, to connect you. Just great to hear you coming out the other side of this honestly <laughs> I, I, it's it's I, you said before you're having to look back in your notes to how you were feeling because it felt like so long ago and Absolutely. isn't that just isn't that just amazing so thank you so so much for being with us today dr nasa always a pleasure um i know you're incredibly busy at the minute as people are either looking to address things or boost their health you're talking there about anti-aging offer so i think we're definitely need to have you back to find out what has got the dubai health community talking right now in the meantime though really really appreciate both of your time We're talking kids and communication now. Laura Anthony joining us in the studio. She's currently a primary school teacher here in Dubai and has just started a new business called Chatterbox, which encourages young people to talk openly with each other while doing fun crafts, activities at the same time. I love the idea of this, Laura. Before we talk teens, what were you like as a teenager? <laughs> um, thank you very much for having me You're very welcome um, what was I like as a teenager well I'm sure my mum and dad might disagree we'll but... send them the podcast don't you worry <laughs> um, no I think I was good I worked hard at school um, I was an expat kid myself so I lived in Portugal for a long time and then went back home to England so I think I was a good teen yeah oh, I wasn't <laughs> and the reason I ask is because I think there's a lot of new challenges facing teens now compared to, you know, when, when, I was, when I was a teenager. But I feel like there are some universal themes and that is, you know, risky behaviour, wanting to feel part of a tribe, a gang, a group and pushing boundaries. And unfortunately, sometimes the communication between child and parents goes 
by the wayside. And sometimes that can have really devastating effects on a child, but also on the family dynamic as well. And I wondered what's then led you to looking at identifying this as a problem to be solved. Absolutely. I mean, today's society really doesn't help at all, does it? There's so many things that can influence, one, how they want to behave, two, how they actually behave. Um, so obviously, being a teacher myself, I see lots of lots of situations at school that I think, oh, this could be helped. Um, so talking back to Chatterbox, how it started was that I'd got a few children in school, around school, coming up to me saying, can you help me with this question? Should I be worrying about this? Is this something that is normal? And Chatterbox is more about not necessarily targeting children who identify as needing help, but everybody. So I, I think personally, everybody needs and benefits from a good chat, mm-hmm. um, hence the name Chatterbox. So the aim of the session just to get children together, talking to each other, um, using each other for advice um, and just talking about those daily worries and questions that they might have, which us as teachers, and I know as parents, life is so, so busy. We don't often have that much time to answer I their know. 7 million questions. Oh, <laughs> tell me about it. Tell <laughs> me about it. And I wish I was that parent who'd be like, well, let's sit down and explore all of your curiosities. But, you know, life gets in the way. And one of my big kind of parenting mottos is you need to try and listen to the little stuff when they're little or they won't tell you the big stuff when they're big. And that's so much easier said than done. And I wondered then as a teacher, what are some of the major challenges? What are some of the issues that young people are coming to you with or perhaps trying to talk to their parents about? Um, there is, it's absolutely huge in terms of what they wonder and what they want to know. But a few of the things that come up often for me is depending on what sort of age group the children are, is a lot of the children actually worry about their school life and about the pressures of school life and their homework and what they should and shouldn't be doing in school in terms of what society perceives them to be like. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm curious if you think this is a Dubai thing or a universal thing. Oh, definitely a Dubai thing. I think so yeah. too. It, it was me a little home. bit. It does. Because <laughs> I, like, I want my kids to do well at school, but I want them to enjoy it. And that, I, that academic pressure really freaks me out to be honest because it feels like it's just this pressure cooker for these little kids who perhaps haven't got the capacity or the maturity to deal with it yeah that is exactly it and do you know what was so lovely so we've been running the sessions for nearly a month now and in the sessions the children communicate with each other and just listening to their conversations is so nice like they were saying to each other who do you share your secrets with and opening up about what they should and shouldn't do when their brother's annoying them or things like that and it's I don't necessarily think it's a conversation that they would have time for at school going to be talking more about what happens in the sessions and how indeed uh, young people can get involved in them. Laura here from Chatterbox. For anyone who wants to have a little look now while we've got a couple of minutes, what's the best way of having a look and finding out more? So they can go onto the website, which is www.chatterboxdxb.com or they can go onto the Instagram, which is chatterboxdxb. As you would imagine, I do believe it is good to talk. And so does Laura Anthony. She's with us in the studio now. She's currently a primary school teacher who set up some, well, I have to say, something I wish I had when I was a young person. It's called Chatterbox and it's aimed at kids between the ages of 10 and 14, boys and girls, to come together, share some of the challenges they're going through, share advice to each other and often with an activity. How, what, why do you think that activity piece can really help kids open up, Laura? 
So the, the activity idea came from the fact that obviously as adults, we love, I mean, I do personally, love chatting with my friends over a coffee. Um, children, on the other hand, won't sit for an hour and or wouldn't like to sit for an hour without an activity or something to occupy them and give them. Do you know what? Just that therapeutic calming vibe. I think, I think it can often kind of unlock a bit of the brain as well. Like I used to dread my mum being like, we need to talk. Come yeah. to the kitchen table. And like, whereas, like, if we would do, and actually, some of the best chats I've ever had with my mum was when we were swimming in the sea because I was like, we're doing something else, but we're clearly having a big conversation here. And it, you feel less subconscious, I think, if, there's, if your hands are busy and there's something else happening on the table, maybe. Yeah, it's a distraction, isn't it? Yeah. So, what have you done in the past? What's, what's gone down well with the kids? Uh, so, we've had three sessions so far that have been really, really successful. And the kids have told me themselves they've loved it. They've come back every week, which is a great sign. That's um, so, the first session, we were actually painting and designing tote bags. So, they all made their own little tote bag and took it home. What was so lovely is I have a couple of children from the school where I work, and they were actually carrying them around, which I loved. Aww. Amazing, um, and then last week we painted rocks, which was their their hit favorite. Loved it. So this is happening. People sign up on a monthly basis. Is yeah, that right? On a monthly basis. And we've had a couple of questions going how to get in touch and all of that. So that in terms of people signing up, have you got a new term starting? Is it you know is there a new one starting December? Can you outline that for us, Laura? Yeah. So we do have two more sessions left in November. Um, there's one this Thursday, which you're more than welcome to join. You just if you go on the website or the Instagram, there's a form just to let me know you're coming so I can accommodate. Um, and then for December, we're unfortunately not doing any sessions. Um, You've got other plans. She's <laughs> getting married. Yes, I am getting married. Um, so then in January, we'll be back onto the normal schedule and it'll be signing up on a monthly basis. So obviously you're in venues around the UAE as well. So if any venues out there are interested in hosting the gang, um, I think that sounds like, because as you say, parents can sit downstairs and have a coffee. They can leave the kids. I keep on saying kids, 10 to, 10 to 14. The, the Young t- the people. Tweens. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you mind reminding us of the website again for Chatterbox? Yes, so it's www.chatterboxdxb.com. So it must be really meaningful for you to see those friendships being formed and some of the advice and camaraderie, I guess, that you're witnessing around those tables. Yeah, the... Honestly, I didn't expect at all. Um, But one of the girls left and I said to her, so what did you think? And she was like, I didn't think about anything else for the hour. She was like, I've got so much homework to do. But in that hour, I was just really happy. And she said, I didn't think about anything else, which really Mm -hmm. pulled on my heartstrings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think there's, as we mentioned earlier, that academic pressure, lots of sporting commitments. We're really keen to overpack our kids with lots going on. And I feel like this could be such a valuable addition for conversation for support for meeting meeting kids outside of their normal social group I think that's it sounds crucial if anyone wants the details of this please don't hesitate to drop me the line and just say chatter and I will send you the website for chatterbox Laura all the very best I wish I wish you're like Miss Honey you wish you'd been my teacher and I (laughs) I wish this was around I was gonna say thank you I was like 20 years ago (laughs) <laughs> 30 years ago thank you all the very best thank you thank it you. is afternoons with me Helen Farm if you do want the details of Chatterbox just drop me the line saying Chatter I will send that over as I said starting again in January aimed at kids between the ages of 10 and 14 some activities some conversation and a whole lot of community too Now, chances are you will have driven along Palm Jumeirah you might have been there for a stroll 
But what about swimming around it? Alex Millington is attempting this and in doing so, raising awareness for touch and highlighting the importance of inclusion in sport. He joins us on the live online now. Alex, I have so many questions about this. Thank you for being with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself first. I've heard that you were a former national swimmer. Is that right? Yes. Um, so before I got into CrossFit when I was younger, um, I was a national level swimmer. So I was doing that from the age of seven through to 18. Um, I stopped when I got to university. Um, I broke my ankle a couple of times, so it meant I couldn't keep swimming. Um, and then I ended up transitioning into CrossFit and I've been doing that now for the last five years. Clearly haven't lost the skills or the fins when it comes to swimming. Now, my daughter's literally in a swimming gala right now and I'm a real nervous wreck mum. She's seven years old and was so nervous this morning. So it's really encouraging to hear about you starting that journey at just seven years old. Now, tell us then, you are represented by Touch, which we're going to be exploring a little bit in a minute. But I want to know about the swim first, the palm swim. What's the route? What is the distance? And how on earth are you training for this? Um, So... I'll be starting from Coco Bay on West Beach. Uh, I'll go down towards the beginning of the palm, like the bridge that you drive over the water onto the palm on. Mm-hmm. I'll swim under that and then out towards the outer crescent where I think the Rixos Hotel on the right-hand side, so that's yeah. on um, the outer crescent there. I'll swim all the way round back to um, the bit where it will let me into West Beach again. And then once I get to the beach, I'll swim back down to Coco Bay. And the total distance for that will be about 18 kilometers. And I'm hoping to get it done between like six and seven hours. Uh, it just depends on the tides, which we won't really know until like properly what they'll be until tomorrow. Um, but then obviously things could change on Saturday. So it's Saturday. It's going to be all taking place. As you say, there's so many variables here in terms of weather, tides. Yeah. What about wildlife? Are you expecting to, to meet any friends in the water along the way? Yeah, so when I've done, uh, over the last three months whilst I've been training, I've seen a turtle, I've seen some huge stingrays, loads of fish. And then today I was actually on the way to Kite Beach to go and swim. And somebody sent me a video that there was a shark at Kite Beach today. <laughs> wow. So I, I actually didn't go and swim in the sea today. I'll, I'll change it <laughs> out for a pool swim tomorrow just because I'm not doing that by myself. <laughs> well, um, I don't you... mind doing it a group on Saturday, but I don't, I don't fancy a shark taking a bite out on me before. No, it's Dubai. Everybody's friendly here, even the wildlife. Um, so tell us then, are you going to be in the water by yourself? Or are you going to have some kind of companions and support on the swim on Saturday? No, so I have people swimming with me. So like with the premise of the swim being inclusivity, we wanted to tie in um, some of the local swim clubs and allow some other talents uh, within Dubai to join me on the swim. So I'll be the only one completing the full distance around the palm. Um, But we have six swimmers joining me. So we've got uh, Mike, who was, you actually had on the radio yesterday. He was a GB Commonwealth gold water polo player. Uh, We've got two girls called Izzy and Ree, who are both British national medalists. Um, Perry was a US national medalist and a British record holder. Kevin from Huna Aquatics, so he's a Paralympic gold medalist. And then we've got one young girl from Speedo Swim Squads called Jana, and she just competed at the Ocean Man um, open water swimming competition where she came fifth. Wow. So they'll be doing 30-minute intervals with me. Uh, so two of them will get in every half an hour, then they'll have a one-hour break whilst the other guys swim. And then once I reach West Beach, we've got a 500-metre strip where we've got some youth swimmers from the clubs like Speedo, Hamilton, Huna, MSA. They'll pick one male and one female who will come and join me in the water. And then we've also got a few of the volunteers from Touch Dubai as well. 
once we reach the beach, there'll be a small sort of 10 meter section where we'll have some of the PODs in the water. So we've got five really brave young kids called Ruby, Maxine, Vikram, Sama, Sid, and uh, Mubashir. And they will then um, exit the water with us. So like we're all, um, you know, completing sort of the achievement together. Finishing as uh, as Team Touch. For anyone who's not familiar with Touch, you are going to be swimming to raise awareness. What is it and what does it represent, Alex? So Touch is two things. One side of it is a talent management agency where um, they represent athletes and celebrity chefs. And then the other side of it is a consultancy for inclusion and diversity for organizations where they look after PODs and give them the opportunity to take part in things that they wouldn't necessarily have been able to do without Touch's help. So um, all over Dubai, they're taking place in things like gym sessions here at CrossFit Elias, uh, yoga sessions, they're going into uh, kitchens, learning how to cook, and all of these things are for free as well. So it's about the community giving back to the kids. So me being part of Touch, I'm an athlete, but also part of the mentorship program. Um, So I will deliver sessions for the kids in the gym on Sundays, uh, try to get them as active as we can. Obviously, they've got ranging uh, Mm -hmm. disabilities, so some people are more capable than others. But the whole point of Touch is just about giving back to the community. And that inclusion piece, which I think you're doing a brilliant job of representing this coming Saturday. There's going to be lots of activities taking place on the beach. If anyone does want to come and show you support, where can we find you in real life and where can we find you online as well, Alex? Um, So on the day, I'll be starting at like 6.30am and I should be aiming to get back to the beach for around one o'clock. There'll be activities starting from 10.30. So I think there's three different groups of people coming down to help. Um, two, two of the groups will be run by Touch. And I think there's one called Vikings that are coming down to do some water activities with the kids. And then anyone that wants to walk around the Crescent, we should on the day be posting across um, different social media channels like myself, um, just Alex Millington underscore on Instagram. The other guys who I mentioned earlier will be swimming and then Touch sort of timestamps of where I'll be on the Crescent. So once we reach the Rixos uh, after the practice swim I did last week, we know how long it will take me to get to uh, different destinations along the Crescent. Well, Alex, fuel up. It sounds like it's going to be a brilliant day, as I said, raising awareness Thank for you. a fantastic initiative. And if you want to find out more, it's at Touch Dubai. They're doing some brilliant work. Can't wait to see you arriving on the beach with Ruby and the gang. I think it's going to be an absolutely brilliant moment for everyone concerned. Alex, all the very best. Keep us posted. We'll see you on social. And let's hope you make some fishy friends um, along the way. Cheers. Really Thank do you appreciate much. your time. Um, Alex Millington there, as I said, you can find him on Instagram at AlexMillington underscore and it's at Touch Dubai swimming around the palm this Saturday. Anti-bullying week 2022 started yesterday with the theme Reach Out. No data here in the UAE, but a survey of 30,000 schoolchildren across England has found that one in four say they are frequently bullied face-to-face. Children with special education needs or disabilities were even more likely to be targeted, 31% and 6% of the bullying occurred online. This research is from the Anti-Bullying Alliance and analysed by Goldsmiths University of London and finds that both those being bullied and the children who bully others have a bad experience of school life, just like going to school, feel less safe and have poorer relationships with their teachers. So what can we as parents do and what 
is happening on the school side too. We're joining now by RGS Guildford Dubai School Councillor Theresa Panashiekia. Thank you so much for being with us. I find it really emotional to talk about this. I think a lot of a lot of parents do because all we want to do is protect our children. You know, that's and how we do that depends on you know, our parenting techniques and our relationship with our children. And I think we often don't quite fully understand the role that a school can play in being on our team and protecting them against bullies and having those conversations. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the communication line, because as they get older, as we were just talking about there with Laura from Chatterbox, it can get more and more difficult to get information out of them. And Theresa, I just wondered, where can we start as parents? What advice can you offer us for talking to our kids? And getting the real information. <laughs> yes, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Parents often ask me, how do I talk to my children? They never tell me anything. I ask them how their day is and they say fine or I forgot. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So I brought you four tips on how to enhance your communication with your children. Tell us because... Ready. Yeah, I, I really am. I'm, I'm going to send this podcast to myself because I haven't got a notebook in the studio. So let's go. Amazing. Number one. Number one, connection. So the big question is, what is the reason why we are asking our child about their day? Is it because maybe we want the assurance that there is nothing for us to fix today? Mm-hmm. We just want to tick the box. Mm-hmm. Or do we really want to know about their day? their friends, their challenges, their victories, are we coming from a place of real curiosity and wanting to know them and truly listen? So your child will feel the difference and they will react accordingly. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, set yourself, ask yourself the question before you actually start asking them. And then in terms of the type of questions we ask. Absolutely. (laughs) Unpack that a little bit for us. Absolutely. That's my tip number two. Open-ended questions. So we have all be there. We get yes, good, no, I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So open-ended questions are your friend. You can be incredibly creative and inquisitive with them. Ask your children what you are actually curious about. So, for example, what was the most fun part of the day? Did you happen to face any challenge today? Uh, What was it that you needed in that moment? Or maybe what was it that you learned from it? Mm -hmm. You will notice that I'm trying to phrase the questions positively. And if you want to go to the masterclass, Try to bring some ownership into the question. So if your child tells you, oh, I hate school, you can say, oh, really? And what are the changes that you would make if you were the principal? Can I ask you a question about not just the questions you're asking, but where and when this should happen? Because I, I often get, you know, I come home from work and I'm tired and often quite tired of talking. Um, my kids are often tired of talking as well. And it can feel like a bit of a chore that, you know, we need to sit down and kind of debrief about our days. And then suddenly they get into bed and they are just like the absolute chatterboxes. Um, timing can be just as important as phrasing, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, timing and body language, how you make, you know, we need to think when we meet with friends, you are, we often make time, we make preparation, we make arrangement, we 
we set up mm-hmm. for a nice time for for the connection that we want to see so favorite time sometimes for some families is dinner time sometimes it's bedtime sometimes my favorite is one to one ride car rides i i agree mhm definitely and you know if you if you happen to create a routine it's mm-hmm. amazing and sometimes just jump at an opportunity something i really struggle with is a lot of parenting experts talk about you know it's quality time over, over quantity something that you know and i absolutely understand that but often the duration of time can make a real difference in my children's ability to open up Absolutely. So, so it, and that's a kind of a balance I think a lot of parents kind of struggle with. It's like I think, creating those opportunities. Yes, and sometimes um, it it will work with your friends as well. If you set up the time in advance and just tell them, "Ooh, shall we have a little bit of you know to get in this time?" Mm-hmm. They will start preparing in their head already, What's and they will start you know making a little maybe unconscious list of things that they actually want to, to talk to. Um, your next tip is modeling. Mm-hmm. So. This um this as comes naturally to a lot of a lot of parents for others you know being able to be open with our conversations and feelings can feel quite unnatural any tips for overcoming any self-consciousness about that emotional availability <laughs> So <clears throat> I will say at the beginning that the research data shows us that actually observation and imitation are the most effective learning tools. So if we want children to learn something well and fast, show them how it's done. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, um this is one of the greatest kind of gifts as well as challenges of parenting. You can't expect your children to make it if you don't yourself. So absolutely, I think this is the challenge for us. show them how open vulnerable conversation is done at the dinner table ask your partner how was how has your day been mm-hmm. or you can say you know guys yeah. it's been something on my mind it's lately it's been a tough one and i don't know the answers could i just could you just could you just listen i would like to know what you think so yeah we need to go into that vulnerable place first and then having them follow us Your last tip is the multi-tool 1 to 10 scale. I am lost on this, <laughs> Teresa. What is this all about? So this must be my absolute favorite. I use it probably every day. Um it's borrowed from solution-focused approach, super helpful. Um so it is a very simple scale from 1 to 10 where 1 is the worst-case scenario, everything goes wrong, and 10 is, you know, 10 out of 10 you'll understand it and children sometimes struggle to tell us exactly the emotion they are going through or what they think about something but they will find it very easy to tell you how bad or good they feel about something and that's going to be your opening line so if they tell you oh i had a 5 out of 10 day you know that was not great and you can jump in and you can ask them oh and now Now watch. Um what number number would you like to be at tomorrow? And what would you change? What would you do differently so that you catapult yourself to number 8? And you will you will have noticed that I'm framing it in terms of solution. Mm-hmm. What not was what was the problem necessarily today, which will be easy it will 
come out easily, but you want to orient them on how I make it better. That growth mindset. Thank you so much. We've run out of time. I have run out of questions, but I think this is an absolutely fascinating topic. And while we are marking Anti-Bullying Week, I feel these getting these communication lines open can often be the way of getting something out in the open as early as possible mm-hmm. so you can work with schools. And I know you're doing fantastic stuff over there at RGS Guildford from obviously having an amazing school counsellor yourself, Teresa, but also things like you know friendship benches and peers and mentors mm-hmm. and open conversations about some really difficult things. Because I think a lot of schools be like, well, we don't have bullying in our school, which is absolute nonsense. There is going to be some form of bullying in every single school, workplace, friendship mm-hmm. group, mm-hmm. and ignoring it doesn't address anything at all. So we will be continuing our conversation around bullying tomorrow on the show and in the meantime thank you so much for your time Teresa really really interesting and some very practical tools I think an awful lot of parents can really benefit from on the show today Teresa speaking to us there Um, she is a school counsellor at RGS Guildford Teresa Panatiecki Today is National Entrepreneurs' Day and women's entrepreneurship in particular is increasingly being recognised as crucial for economic growth and development here in the MENA region. Not only does it create new jobs for women, but also men as well. And with us now is Professor Heather McGregor from Harriet Watt University here in Dubai. She's got an extensive background in entrepreneurship and is a real champion supporter of female entrepreneurship in particular. How are you, Professor Oh, very well. Thank you, Helen. It's lovely to be on with you this afternoon. And that sounds like a very exciting prize, I have to say. I know. You're you're a friend of the show, so you're not allowed to win, I'm a friend. Don't you dare give away that answer, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for making the time. I think it's a really important topic to highlight and to celebrate. You know, we... We often talk about the struggles that entrepreneurs go through of being that lone sole trader or that small business who's doing everything from PR to HR and all the rest of it. But we very rarely celebrate um, things when they go right or even when they go wrong and and the, the work that goes on behind the scenes to grow or just to be sustained. And I wondered if you've got any stats, any data about when it comes to the growth of entrepreneurship here in the region. Well, yes, I mean, we're very fortunate to live in a region um, where, you know, we have um, really done really very well compared to other parts of the world, which people might find counterintuitive. Um, But I think what's happened here is that we've had a number of initiatives to support um, female only businesses. Uh, You know, recently, uh, you know that the first Abu Dhabi Bank has launched a a partnership with Visa. Um, I think we've had less, if you like, barriers Mm -hmm. for women in terms of of starting. And most women business owners in our region are younger than me. You know, they're between 35 and 54, roughly. And I was 38 when I decided to become an entrepreneur. And there are many different ways that you can do that. Now, we know that a lot more women aspire to be entrepreneurs in this region than actually are. And I want to to call out anybody listening to say, you know, there's lots of routes in. Uh, you know, Yes, you can start in your garage like Bill Gates. And that's that's one way of doing it. The other way, which is the way I did it, is go and buy somebody else's business. Mm. You know, you're still taking risk. You're still um, going to be running a business. But I went and bought somebody else's business. And actually, Helen, you talked just then about being your own PR person, your own HR person. I'm okay at PR and I'm not bad at HR. I'll tell you what I'm absolutely rubbish at is IT. (laughs) And the the biggest shock to me 
when I moved from a big corporate environment, and I worked as an investment banker for many years, into my own business, was that there wasn't anyone on the help desk. Oh, you know, can we give a shout out to everyone in IT? Because I feel like yeah. they are the first ones that get that really angry phone call of saying this isn't working. But they never yes. get the phone call at the end of the day saying everything worked perfectly today and thank you. So I do not take them for granted. <laughs> No, that's so right. Everybody on every help desk out there, we love you. Yeah, not all superheroes wear capes. Um, I'm desperate to ask, what was the nature of the business that you bought in, in your 30s? It was a headhunting business. Uh, when when you're deciding to um, go into a business or set it up in your garage or buy a business, the first thing to think about is where is what are you doing that adds value? You know, what is it that you can bring to the party that would add value? Because if you're going to invest your time and money, and by the way, those are both scarce resources, in into something, you want it to produce a return. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to invest my time and my money into something where I felt the addition of me to the business would make it be more successful. Um, otherwise, I might as well have bought a dry cleaners, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, or, or, or just sat at home and invested my money into shares into a public company. If you're going to do something, do something where you think your uh, particular magic powers, whatever they are, or your skill set is, is going to help. And I had an enormous telephone book, which was very helpful in in, in a headhunters, but might have been less helpful as a dry cleaners. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Um, we mentioned there about the benefits to society when women become more financially independent or financially literate and, and certainly earning more. Can you expand on that for us a little bit, Professor? Mm. So women actually make 70% of, of all finance decisions. I think even in the region, make more than half of all the finance decisions. If you think about all of the things that are bought in the home, um, you know, everything from the family car to uh, which television is bought mm-hmm. to where that where you're going to spend, you know, your money on. I mean, even in, in the, the UAE, think of all the services that are provided to the home. Absolutely. Who makes most of the decisions about that? So if you give women a financial education, you actually, you're not educating just the woman, you're educating a whole family. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why we offer, for instance, a women-only MBA scholarship um, here in the region. And we've done that every year now for, you know, since I started, so six years. I started with the university six years ago in Scotland, but I was, because I was a founding member of the 30% Club, I helped set up this scholarship here in the region which we do which we offer at our Dubai campus and then six years later I've got my dream job which is running the Dubai campus completely not just the business school Um, and so I'm be able now to support even more women into education. Well Harriet what's very lucky to have you and last lastly I wanted to ask you Professor Heather if you could wave a magic wand and change an attitude or remove a barrier to encourage more women to become their own boss in as you say the myriad ways that that can look like what would you like to change? I'd like to change the financing of women in business. I mean, we've just mentioned uh, a bank in the region that's, that's done something as an initiative, but, you know, there could be so many more. And what I found when I was trying to, that £1.8 million I paid to buy a business, I borrowed all of that. And getting anyone to lend me a business, even though I was a, I had a very successful professional track record, like getting someone to lend me that money was very, very, or invest that money in me was very difficult. And yet... Men find it a little easier. Only 1% of venture capital finance goes to women. And a lot of the women who set up in the UAE are backed by family. Families finance them and things like that. I would like to see the barriers removed so that really any woman from any kind of wealth 
background, um, even very modest backgrounds, could start their own business here in the region. And it does often start with having conversations like this, but also knocking on doors and saying, this is what we need, this is what we demand, and my goodness, it's going to be worth it if you uh, extend some money, some bravery, and uh, and see the potential in so many of these women and their ideas. Well, thank you so, so much for being with us, Professor. really do appreciate your time. A really worthy topic to highlight on any day of the year, but especially natural, uh, National Entrepreneurs' Day. All the very best to you and yours, uh, Doctor. Um, speaking to us from Harriet Watt Professor Heather McGregor. Really do appreciate your time. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.